Hello and welcome back to Spotlight on Women in Health Ventures, the podcast powered by Thea, a nonprofit dedicated to empowering women as entrepreneurs in healthcare. Today, we'll be exploring the venture capital industry within life sciences and healthcare with Barbara Schilberg, founding CEO of BioAdvance. She has more than 30 years of experience working with academic technology and startup companies in the life sciences sector. Under her leadership as CEO, BioAdvance has committed more than $44 million to 58 C-stage companies and 32 pre-seed projects focusing in areas including Alzheimer's, cancer, diabetes, obesity, and infectious diseases. Before BioAdvance, she served as a senior executive in four emerging life sciences companies and was a lawyer before breaking into the industry. We're really excited to be able to invite Barbara on our podcast, and I hope you're excited too, to hear about her story, her experiences as a female leader in venture capital, and her advice to entrepreneurs. Barbara, thank you so much for speaking with us today. We're very excited for you to join us. Really excited to also hear about your experience as a female leader in venture capital. We look forward to hearing your advice to young entrepreneurs that hope to break into the life sciences industry, especially. To start with, would you be able to share your background with us and specifically how you decide to pursue venture capital as a profession? So it's great to be invited to do this. Thank you so much. And it's a pleasure to be here. So I've, I've often said that my background looks sort of like the game, the board game shoots and ladders with lots of turns and twists and ups and downs. And um, I guess the bottom line has always been that I've just been able to meet some tremendously smart and successful people. But I basically started in the federal government uh, when I got out of undergraduate school. And after about six years doing that, I ended up in a policy position working in a political position with the assistant secretary of transportation lost the position when there was an election and decided to go back to graduate school at that point, debated MBA versus law school, and in the end went with the law school. And then I ended up going with Morgan Lewis, which is a big multinational firm and sort of made partner along the way. But in the 80s, in the 1980s, one of my colleagues left and um, asked me to take over for a client representation called the Wistar Institute, which is well-known in Philadelphia. It's a cancer research institute. It's been around for like 150 years. And that was just in the early days of the biotech. And I was helping Wistar as well as Penn and Jefferson and some other institutions figure out they were finally allowed under the Bayh-Dole Act to commercialize their technology. And everybody was trying to figure out how do you go about doing that? And I'd been a business and finance advisor and learned all about licensing. And, and then I morphed into representing biotech companies and did their financings and took them public and just had a great time because I had I love the science, even though I'm not a scientist by training, but I love it. So eventually I, I left and went into uh, one of my clients that became a public company called Cephalon. I was the general counsel and um, the CEO there was somebody I'd worked with for many years. And he sort of asked me to take on some non-traditional responsibilities as general counsel. I ran a phase three drug program called that was approved as a drug called ProVigil. And I learned so much about the process and, and the end game that I then decided I wanted to leave and run an early stage research company, which I did. And that was acquired by a California company. And then so I, I sort of morphed around to four 
different biotech companies over the years and came out of the fourth one and realized that there weren't a lot of small companies in the Philadelphia area, even though there had been in the 80s and 90s, but there had been sort of a gap. And about that time, my former boss from Cephalon, Frank Baldino, was involved in a civic opportunity to create and set up a life sciences greenhouse, which is what BioAdvance is. And it was funded with money from the big tobacco settlement that a lot of states joined in 2001. And money in Pennsylvania was set aside for three life sciences greenhouses, of which BioAdvance is one. And the original jurisdiction was around the Philadelphia area. So I was hired as sort of the founding CEO and had to figure out the business plan and we started with about $20 million of basically state money with the mandate that we weren't really supposed to come back to the state. We were supposed to focus on investing in early stage technologies and take that money and make a successful, sustainable business out of it. So I took that on. It was slightly crazy to think that was even doable, but you know, we did it. So, so it wasn't really a decision. And I hadn't been an investor and I didn't know what an investor really did, but I'd been in biotech companies. So and I'd also represented and worked with biotech companies for many years. So I had a lot of experience seeing companies grow. And that's what I bring to bear sort of in, at BioAdvance. Gotcha. That's definitely a journey. It's interesting how um, you went from a non-science background and you're now totally ingrained in the biotech and life sciences world. Could you tell us a little bit about how you went from more of a legislative licensing business aspect to more of a science like, did you have to go out of your way to learn about the science or was it more of like through the journey you were able to gain more, more and more knowledge and insights along the way? I think because I'm not afraid of science, I have been very comfortable learning it along the way. And I mean, most people who work with me are sort of surprised that I don't have a science background because I'm actually very conversant with the terminology. I understand the mechanisms and things like that. But to be sure, to be very clear, I do rely, I have tremendous scientists around me. And so that's the combination that I think works. But my training as a lawyer is sort of interesting because it makes me very objective. So I challenge even scientific assumptions. I can really detect when somebody's making a leap that isn't really founded. So it's an interesting combination. I mean, my skills have really, even though I didn't plan on being an investor, as it turns out, they all sort of led and supported my ultimate role as an investor. I guess focus in your career really helps you bring another fresh perspective to an industry like healthcare investment. I think another question that we had regarding BioAdvance was, are there specific deals or investments that you would like to share with us that you're particularly proud of? Well, sure. I think backing up a bit, what makes BioAdvance unusual is we're an evergreen fund, so we're not a traditional venture fund and we recycle our returns. And the key about that is that we can be very patient and can stay with a company for a really long time. We don't have to go out and raise a new fund every two to three years, which most people have to do, and justify our existence. And that means you have to force companies to exit or do things so that you can you know, put on a good show. I think BioAdvance, we're very patient. And we've been, you know, we have companies that have been around literally since 2000. I think we made our first investment in 2003. And we have some companies from that time period that are still alive. They haven't produced a return, but they're still alive and doing well. So the two examples I was thinking of that show why patience really matters and how it can really yield benefits. One was a company called Novira, which we incubated basically for three and a half years by ourselves. We came in alone. 
It was a team from Merck. They had a concept. They had a new approach to antiviral treatments. It had not been done before. And we invested a million and a half over the course of three years, which was totally underfunded. But they sort of scraped and were very clever about how they got the work done. Then they they raised a significant Series A from Versant and Canaan and some other top-tier investors. They ended up hiring a new CEO and then sold the company to J&J. And we made a lot of money. So it was our largest investment and it was our largest return. So we're eternally grateful to the Novira team. What's cool is that the program is still at J&J. It's still in the clinic. I think it's in phase two, if not later. So who knows, it might actually become a, a drug for patients. And also the founder, one of the co-founders, um, Lalo Flores, went out and founded Century Therapeutics, which raised $250 million last year. They're doing cell therapies. So, you know, his success enabled him to go out and do something really fantastic. So we're very excited about it. And then I think the second example is a company called Relmada, which has changed names over the years, but we invested in 2004. It went through many pivots, change of management. 2012, I think, the new CEO came to us and said, well, would you put some money in? And, you know, we sort of looked at, there was a new program and we looked at the opportunity and we actually put money in, which is very rare to have eight years in between investments. And then it, it went public through a backdoor OTC kind of setting and languished. I mean, the, the CEO was working very hard, but it, it wasn't getting a huge stock price. And then they managed to complete phase two. And just last fall, they announced phase two results and the stock price went from $4 to 42 But it's been, what, 16 years or something like that. So we were able to wait. We stuck with the company and we've made money and now we're out of the company. But I'm excited about it because it's pursuing major depressive disorder. So it would be tremendous um, if it works for patients because it's badly needed. So, but it's two examples of how being patient and, and being in for the long term really matters. Of course. And what sort of made you take a chance on those entrepreneurs? It's very you know easy to say in retrospect that, of course, they were successful and I made the right investment. But I guess when they mm-hmm. first approached you, it was very challenging to take a chance and you know spend the largest amount of money that BioAdvance had yeah. allocated. So maybe speaking more towards the personal qualities or the way they presented or other aspects of their pitch that really made you interested and intrigued by their idea? Well, I think in both cases, it was domain expertise that really got the first investment done. The Merck team for Novira was just incredibly knowledgeable experience. They knew what they were doing. We had a high confidence level. I mean, we literally did start with a concept and they took it from from there, executed beautifully with very little amounts of money. But I think it was just they inspired confidence in us. They knew what they were talking about. I mean, they went after hepatitis B, which at the time was very contrarian because everybody was chasing hepatitis C. But I just believed them, because I think, because they had such great training and that hepatitis B was, in fact, a big global issue, even if it wasn't a U.S. issue. So I think that explained why we got started. And then they kept executing and performing. And so we just kept investing more and more and more and more. But the first investment was because we were so impressed with their knowledge and capability and thoughtfulness and experience. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Especially life sciences companies is requiring more of an understanding of the real science behind the technology and the offering that we're bringing to the market and the patients. The domain expertise seems really important. But we also want to ask you, when these entrepreneurs may not 
have the necessary experience, maybe given their age, for example. They are young, but they have a lot of passion and they have a drive to push the company forward. Do you have any advice for those kind of entrepreneurs if they are able to you know, position themselves in a certain way that they are able to gain confidence from the investors? Well, I mean, in the therapeutic space, I don't really think you can do it young. I mean, I think you have to have been in a company, seen it done, whether it's in another biotech company or a startup or, I mean, you just can't jump in and develop a drug. So I don't think, we, although we have first-time CEOs, but we don't have inexperienced people who are the entrepreneurs. Now, I think in the digital health, and I would say that goes true for medical devices and diagnostics as well. I think in the digital health space, you do see oftentimes students who are starting companies and things like that. And I think that is more doable. It's still optimal, I think, if they've been in a company before and have seen some previous CEO or a C-level person and they've been exposed to it. I literally did have one CEO who had never even been in a board meeting, much less asked to run a board meeting when she became CEO. So it's like, okay. I mean, it would be nice if you can get a little bit of training in another environment, but it's not critical. And we have funded students. I think we've funded multiple student projects at this point. So in the digital health space, I don't think you can really do it in, in the traditional regulated you know, biotherapeutics devices, diagnostics. Yeah, I can see where you're coming from. And I definitely have seen that, although there have been some exceptions. But I think sort of the issue is, is that many college graduates will sort of jump into their first job and sort of, you know, think in the long run, they're going to start a company, but then they get comfortable and cozy with the benefits of paid Uh meals and the New York City lifestyle and all that sort of stuff. It's hard. Or like you're a student and then you're sort of in this rat race for residency and training. What would you advise those people who are, you know, really passionate about entrepreneurship but, you know, might have other uh, obligations at the time if they want to sort of break into entrepreneurship. I think you can be an entrepreneur late in life. So I don't think you have to do it when you're young. I think the more experience you gain doing things, it's true of investing as well. I think both of them actually benefit from experience. So I guess get your house in order. I do think at least at the startup stage in the life sciences space, sometimes you're not going to be making as much money and you're going to be doing this for sweat equity. And so you, you can't really do it when you're at the prime of your life and have four kids and you know, you're, trying to, or you're trying to pay off student loans. You either do it before you get loaded up with all of that or you do it after you, get, after you make some money. And it's very hard to do it, I think, in the middle when you do have a lot of other obligations. a little bit and I want to ask and then kind of pick your brain on what your thought process might be in deciding to invest or or foregoing on a startup that approaches BioAdvance. What's your approach in investing in a smart and impactful way? We actually don't meet the entrepreneur right away or the team right away. We sort of look at a non-confidential deck. I have a group, although there are only a couple employees in BioAdvance, we have an extended group of advisors who are regulars. So they're almost like permanent teams, but they're just part-time. So we have a group of about seven people, I guess, that mostly clinicians. I have a big bias in favor of MDs. And we look at a non-confidential deck and then sort of get the consensus around the broader table about, do we think there's an unmet need? Because if there's not an unmet need, 
that's kind of the end of the story. And then we start to collect all the different questions and comments and then decide, do we like it enough to have the team in or set up a Zoom call as it is these days? And if so, what are the questions? And we have a meeting with the the team normally. And then a subgroup will, if we decide to go forward at that point, a subgroup then takes the deal forward and does the term sheet and closing and due diligence and things like that. So I would say the most important things for us are that there has to be a significant unmet need. You have to be able to use the amount of money you're looking for to get to the next round of funding. And that varies tremendously by on a case-by-case basis. So there is no template for what that number is. And you need to be able to attract the next layer of investment or the next level of investment. And you have to, initially, there are two financing paths you can take. You can take the traditional that goes to the Versants and Canons of the world and the top tier VCs who are funding fewer and fewer deals, putting more and more dollars into those deals. And then there's the non-traditional path. And that's all kinds of different people are in that. And that's like foundations and it's, uh, you know, so it's venture philanthropy. It's, it's huge grants from the government or contracts and it's angels. And, you know, there are, there are a lot of ways to get non-traditional financing. We look at which path the, the company is on and then do we think it's viable to get to, is it the kind of the kind of deal that you're going to see the top tier VCs looking at? Is it the kind of deal that really you're going to have to do the alternative financing, which is perfectly fine. It's just different and get to the end that way. And if we don't think that the financing path is viable, then and with the amount of money that is being requested, then we can't, we can't do the deal. So it all, the pieces of the puzzle have to work together. So once the team sort of gets past that first stage of this review of the deck and you bring them in, I think now you've eliminated the bias, but now you're sort of honing in on the entrepreneur. Could you Uh tell us more about what qualities do you look for in an entrepreneur who you're more eager to invest in and what is sort of a no-go for you as an investor? The investment relationship, at least at the stage that we come in, which is very early, and we plan on spending a lot of time. So we it's almost like more of a collaboration. And it's sort of combining everybody's brains and seeing if everybody's on the same page. The team needs to be coachable. They need to listen. They need to have, you know, it's nice if they've already thought of some of the issues we raise and they have responses. That's a plus. We are, we are very scientific. So we pepper companies. And a lot of people actually now come to us before they go to the big time and go to up to Boston and go out to California because they know that some of the questions we ask are going to be the toughest questions they're going to face. So I think coachability and in the end, you know, you have to be likable because you spend, we, we actually have this test that we sometimes refer to as the, would you mind being stuck in an airport, you know, with this person, or would you enjoy having a beer after work with this person? It's kind of like, are they nice? Are they interesting? Or do they have a sense of humor. It's likability actually counts for a lot in this business because sometimes it makes the difference. You can be smart and unlikable and not get anywhere. And you don't even have to be brilliant, but if you're likable, you'll get far. Yeah. It kind of shows that you're not just looking at the company, like something else needs to go into it. And it's really like the person that is behind the company or that's building the company. Like, are they likable or do they have the right thoughts? Right. Do you enjoy being with them and spending time? Because you're going to spend a lot of time with these people. And, you know, we do ask a lot of questions. We Some would say we micromanage, but, and it's how does that person react to that 
to lines of questions. And, and if they don't like being second guessed or having being questioned, it's not going to work. Yeah, they need to be open to feedback. And also passionate about the mission of, of the whole organization. Yeah, passion. But I will say I've seen some people who are so passionate that they drink their own Kool-Aid and they don't really honestly recognize that they're the weaknesses in the opportunity. And to me, a really good entrepreneur is one that is a champion and is passionate, but also has thought about what the weaknesses are and how are you going to handle them and how do you deal with that? And, you know, so you can't be so oblivious that you're just like a one tone or a one note. This is the greatest thing since sliced bread and not recognize the deficiencies. I mean, that to me is a huge red flag. And it also means that they're not going to be able to execute because there are always issues. There are always issues with every opportunity. So it's just a question of, do you have the plan? How will you handle it? What do you think? When will we know whether this is going to be solved? You know, it's, you're working together towards a plan. Definitely. Another question we wanted to ask you was um, about the pitch. So usually with any interaction between entrepreneurs, investors, or even customers, to structure a story. And we'd like to hear from you what sort of makes the ideal pitch to investors. And if you have tips for do's and don'ts, that would be much appreciated by our listeners. Well, I mean, the point of a pitch is to give the investor a reason to believe in what you're doing. So you have to be very clear upfront about what the problem is that you perceive how you're going to approach it, why that's different and better than other people, and what's sort of your secret sauce? Like, what is there an insight? Like, what is it that makes you think you can solve the problem and other people haven't? And then the quality of the team, and do you have the right people around, even if it's not a full team, and we don't expect anybody to have a full team when we first invest in them. But do you at least have one other person who seems to complement your skill set and have some experience. If you don't have a lot of experience, you know, you, you want good balance. We do like to get science. I mean, I will say that's a bio advanced thing. I don't know how true that is of other people's. I know some angel investors don't like a lot of science. We do. It's a pretty simple story. Here's the problem, how we're going to solve it, why it's better than what other people are doing. And you need to know what other people are doing. That's probably one of the most common things that presentation, they don't even acknowledge that there are other people trying to solve the same problem. And we always know because we see a lot of things. We, we try and stay up to speed. We'll do a little of research probably before we hear a presentation. So we'll know who else is out there. So if you're not prepared for what the competitive landscape is, that's a really bad sign. That to me goes back to that comment we made before, which is they're drinking their own Kool-Aid and they just think they're the best thing that's going on just because they're the only ones they know that are doing the same thing. So that's a, that's a pretty big flaw. Yeah, that makes sense. So you need to be passionate, but aware and cognizant. Yeah, I think it's just really bad to be an ostrich and have your head in the sand and hope nobody asks you about it because a good investor will, they will have done a little bit of research. We always pull market reports and things like that before we talk to a company. So we do know a little bit about what's going on, not as much hopefully as the entrepreneurial team, but we are going to be educated. And when should these entrepreneurs start to seek money from venture capital firms as opposed to, you know, angel investors or maybe even their family and friends? When should those conversations with venture capital firms begin, in your opinion? Well, that goes back to the point I made about 
there are two financing paths and you have to sort of decide which path you're on. Are you the kind of opportunity that the big funds that are putting in 50 to $100 million of financing, do you fall into that bucket? Um, or do you fall into the sort of the non-traditional things that are, you know, maybe not the soup of the day, <laughs> flavor of the day? Then you might be going down an, an, an alternative financing path. I think traditional VCs don't love having angel investors in. So you almost have to decide, you know, whether you really even want to do an angel round. Sometimes I've seen small seed rounds that are, you know, just getting the company organized, maybe getting the patents filed, uh, doing something, you know, just to get the business plan or the business sort of up and running. And then they go out and do a big series A. But angels, they're not for every deal. So part of what you should be doing as an entrepreneur, I think, is actually talking to both types of investors as you, almost before you commit to doing doing an, um, a company. I mean, to me, an entrepreneur's time is actually more valuable than venture money or investors' money. And you should be as rigorous as an entrepreneur, as an investor will be. And, and part of the exercise of doing diligence is talking to people, what, what do you think about this? Do you think this is a big problem? Is this the kind of thing that would be interesting? What would you have to see in order to make it interesting? And all that goes into your thinking about how much money do I have to raise? What, you know, is this, which path am I on? Am I going to be going down an angel or am I going to be going down $50 million Series A. Yeah. And the two different paths that you mentioned, do you have certain characteristics that you've seen throughout the investments that you have made or the companies that you have seen come through that kind of signals, oh, this company should be more of, of this path versus the other path? I tend to look around at what the Versants and the, you know, Canons, I keep going back to them in the 5 a.m.s, what are they investing in these days? And does this opportunity look like something they're investing in? Or I'll pick up the phone and call them and say, hey, what do you think about this? So I try and be aware of what the market is doing. And the market changes all the time. I mean, every year or two, it sort of shifts. So you're constantly trying to assess where the market is. When I, and when I mean market, I mean the venture world. So it's like, does this look like something is going to fit into that mold? So for example, there are a lot of people are repurposing drugs now and a bunch of people are trying to do that now for COVID. But traditional VCs don't really like repurposed drugs. They don't, they want to have a very clean IP path. They want to have composition of matter path because that's what pharma wants and that's who ultimately is going to buy the program. So they have, you know, they have very strict, this is, they're driven by what pharmaceutical companies want. And then the rest of the world, though, it's perfectly viable to go the other route. And there's very there are many more kinds of investors in the alternative financing path than there are in the traditional financing path. So that's what's sort of interesting about it. It takes a little bit more work, and they're more fragmented and harder to find. But there's there are thousands of people who are in the alternative financing path. But it's kind of like if you're not going to fit in the traditional path, then you need to be plan on spending some time trying to cobble together grants and foundations and angel groups. And it's a different, it's just different, but you can still get to the end game. Maybe you can't do the, you can't do the hundred million dollars, 
in an alternative, but you can do smaller deals and those can be very successful. In fact, that's what Romata was. That was sort of a non-traditional uh, financing path and Novera was traditional. So it's just two examples. That's helpful. Mm-hmm. And if you don't mind elaborating further, are there other segments within healthcare or key unmet needs that you think are sort of trending upward in terms of more uh, potential for investment? Well, I think platform companies, I think the um, there is a bias now in favor of platform companies. Again, five or 10 years ago, they were out of favor, but now they're back in favor. So uh, if you look at who's doing series A's and what do the companies look like, I think there are a lot of platform companies. I think the immunotherapy space is sort of, I think people are a little concerned that it's saturated or, or they're trying to sort out, it's a very complicated landscape these days. So where do you need to go if you're an immunotherapy company? And that's another exercise we're going to have to go through because we're looking at an immunotherapy company and it's pretty crowded, but there are also big gaps medically. So who's looking for what? I would say, I mean, the rare disease and the gene therapy space is still very hot. I think cell therapy is very hot. We can't, we're a smaller fund. We're basically a $75 million fund now. And it's hard for us to participate in these huge, big rounds. And the cell therapy and gene therapies take tons of money up front to even begin to de-risk it. It's just because of all the manufacturing costs. So you really need a lot of money and it doesn't necessarily de-risk it or create a value inflection point. It's just kind of a, you got to check the box, you got to do it, but it's expensive. So it's not a great fit for a fund of our size, although we're looking, but you know, not sure how much of that we're going to be able to do. Right. And what about given the, I guess, the landscape of 2020 with COVID and then you have protests and this focus towards racism within our just world these days, have you seen um, sort of uptrends in investments by companies that are sort of honing in on these issues? Well, I mean, that's those are very different issues. So the COVID, I think the people are letting the government fund COVID. I, I would actually be interested in looking at sort of a next generation, maybe a universal coronavirus kind of opportunity. I have very little interest in looking at a COVID, anything that's trying to to make all, you know, rise above the noise level that's going on now. Um, and you really have to have these major grants. And if you're not in that game, I think a small company is going to be lost in the shuffle. So, but I think looking down the road, if nothing else, I think we're going to have another coronavirus, I think. Um, so we really should be thinking about universal coronavirus opportunities. I think on the social injustice side, what I'd love to see, and I'm not seeing tons of signs yet, but our industry has got to take on health disparities because nobody else can. Like everybody has to take on economic disparities, every sector, every industry, so including healthcare. But in addition, healthcare the healthcare industry has to take on health disparities. And I'd love to see more companies consciously sort of articulating, this is how we want to do clinical trials, or this is how we're thinking about building our software so that it's accessible to certain kinds of communities. I mean, I'd really love to see more people consciously trying to address in their own micro way, because it's just going to take lots of little 
efforts that together make one big effort. So I'd like to see more of that. I think that to me is is just a fiduciary obligation of our industry. And I think they I think it's now becoming people are now realizing it. So I'm hoping to see that as a major major trend going forward. I haven't seen it yet except people are grappling with it and what to do and trying to think about it. So fingers crossed. We definitely want to cultivate this next generation of entrepreneurs who will be tackling these pressing problems. And we believe that this next generation of entrepreneurs, we want to focus on the women especially. We think there is a lot of potential there. However, we see in reality, there's not much support for women entrepreneurs currently, especially with statistics that I think last year around less than 5% or around 5% of VC funding was received by women who founded companies. We're not sure about the exact statistic for the healthcare companies, but we'll be interested in finding that out. And we want to hear about your opinion or your any comments you had on this topic. I do think in some ways, I know for BioAdvance, I think 15% of our companies have had women founders, you know, CEOs at one point or another, not, you know, we always have shifts of managements, but it's still too low. Now, I would say though, that we don't turn down. I, I think women who come to us have a higher success rate getting funding than men. So we just don't have that pool of people coming in. And again, I hope that starts to change. It's, it's just a long process. And I do think that the, your generation is going to be more and more is going to create a bigger pool than we've had in the past, because I think your generation is not going to be patient, is not going to be scared away. It's not going to be accepting of being second, second class citizens. So I think your generation just has the moral imperative sort of to go out and get it done. And it's more fearless I think, than previous generations. So I have a lot of hope. I I do think it's going to change. And I think the other thing that's kind of well-recognized, I would say it's well-recognized in the venture industry, is that women-led companies do make uh, more money. I mean, they've created better returns. I think there was a, was it it the Kauffman Foundation? Might have been Kauffman who did a study in the last year or so. And it's pretty clear that having a woman as a CEO or at this, as a founder is good. So I believe it too. Why do you think that is? Um, well, because I think women, I mean, I do think, just like you guys today, you're very well prepared. You have plan A, B, and C. You're organized. You think ahead. You're, you're not winging it. And that is pretty con- true of the women entrepreneurs. You, you still see some guys and not all of them by any means. But you know, they wing it or they're not prepared. And you just don't see that when, when it's a woman who's coming to you for an investment. So yeah, I think, I think they, I I actually think maybe women are used to thinking about plans A, B, and C. And so they've thought through what could go wrong. How are you going to fix it? Well, you know, and that makes for a successful execution. Shifting our focus from entrepreneurs to now investors and for those who are interested in becoming an investor like you, how do you recommend that they start? For those that are our age or even younger, like, are there any you know, resources that they can go after and kind of learn about this space and prepare themselves? Well, again, I think investing after you've had a lot of experience 
in a company is probably the best path because I think the best investors, and that's it's sort of true of my whole team, we all have been in companies and done the development work and done the hard labor. And that's a really important perspective to have when you're an investor. So I think if you ultimately want to be an investor, you should start and get some experience in at least one company. And then you can start thinking about moving into the venture world. And especially if you've been with a high growth company, you know, that tends to attract attention. But you learn a lot from failed companies too. So it doesn't really matter in some ways. I think, you know, you can learn a lot from failure, probably more so than from success. But I think being in an entrepreneurial startup or high growth company is a great path to a number of different things, including, you know, being becoming your own CEO founder, or you can move on and, and go into the investing world. Wanted to ask you a final question. As a successful female investor in healthcare, what are your most important pieces of advice or takeaways that you'd like to share to an aspiring entrepreneur? Well, it's like find a problem that you care about solving, then do some due diligence as if, because as I said, your time is more valuable than investor money because entrepreneurial time is the most scarce resource and there's not enough of it to go around. So spend some time talking to people about your idea, whether it doesn't make sense, what are the problems, really thinking through, does it make sense? And then I also would say, by the way, find a partner, find a, a co-founder. I think it's always more fun to do it with two people than doing it alone. And if, it, if all those things check off, go for it. That's exciting. It's the most exhilarating experience I think you can have. Thank you all so much for listening. Visit us on Instagram at Thea Healthcare and our website at theahc.org for more content. As always, feel free to reach out via DM or our website's contact form with any questions or comments for us or our guests.